1 Corinthians 13, well known to us all, the love chapter. As we look to the reading of God's word, if you please join me in prayer. God of all mercy, you've promised never to break your covenant with us. And amid all the changing words of our generation, we ask that you would speak your eternal word that does not change. Lord, then we may respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. And this we would pray and ask all the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Looking first at the first seven verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the word of the Lord. I'm sure you've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. I think more often it is the case that familiarity breeds familiarity. We hear something enough or we're around someone enough and we just get used to it. We are no longer wowed. And 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those very familiar passages to us. We hear it all the time at weddings. We see it on posters, coffee cups, wall hangings and the like. And it's given us a great familiarity with love is patient, love is kind, and so forth. So I'm encouraging you this morning to listen with fresh ears. Part of what will help is keeping in context the whole letter. We often cut and paste this one chapter out, but Paul intended for it to be understood as a whole with what he's communicating to the Corinthians. The church at Corinth has been blessed with tremendous uh, gifts and abilities, some of them miraculous. Great things are happening to these Christians, and they're making inroads into their city. But the Lord is still needing to take their city out of them. There's a self-centeredness, a self-promotion that's killing them. It's the same that kills us as well. They're glorifying in the wrong things. And unfortunately, it has always been the case that great gifts are celebrated over character. Sadly, we have seen that in the church. Wonderfully gifted charlatans. We've seen that in the business world. We see that in world leadership. We see it in sports all the time. People go, well, he may be a boozing, drug-addled womanizer, but man, he can throw the ball. Can I have your autograph? We elevate those things those gifts and abilities at the expense of character. But that's not the DNA of the church because the DNA of the church is Jesus. He did not come to draw people to himself by wowing them. He came to draw men and women to the Father by loving them. And because God is love and the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love neighbor, we also are to love one another as we have been loved by Jesus. Some have thought this chapter or parts of it are actually uh, an early hymn 
from the church. Chapter 13 is certainly exalted prose. It's elevated in its words and its structure compared to the rest of the letter. Uh, It actually disrupts, to a little extent, Paul's conversation on spiritual gifts. If you take out chapter 13, 12 and 14 naturally flow together. But Paul intends to disrupt. What we see is Paul is actually picking up either direct words that he's already used in his letter or behaviors that he has already addressed by them and putting it into this section. Saying love is not arrogant. That's the same word that he's used for puffed up that he's used several times earlier. And he's telling them love is not rude. Same word used in 1 Corinthians 7 about a man behaving improperly towards his fiance. And even when you look at chapter 8, it links those ideas there with the love mentioned here in 13. There Paul says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something yet do not know as they ought to know. Whoever loves God is known by God. Linking these thoughts together. Because spiritual gifts, talents, and ability are all being used for the wrong reasons. Paul ended chapter 12, he's saying, Earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a way still more excellent. Love is that more excellent way. He then tells us something about the nature and the permanence of love. And we, we see that as it begins in verse 1, the, the nature, the character of love. So if I speak with the tongue of men or angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And, and most understand Paul here is speaking in terms of hyperbole. He's saying, if I could speak with the language of angels, using the highest example to show the importance of love. The whole point is that without love... Anything I say at that high register is meaningless noise. Or more precisely, I am meaningless noise. It's not the gift, but the person who becomes meaningless. He goes on in verse 2. He says, if I had prophetic powers and understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, Paul could very well be speaking about his own gifts here. He was a very gifted man. He's not disparaging of the gifts, but the loveless person using the gifts. He says, I am nothing. And verse 3, if I give away everything I have, I've delivered my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Tremendous acts of self-sacrifice. We've seen them all around the world. He's saying they are spiritually bankrupt without love. Paul is speaking to a church That is full of very gifted people. And there are all these divisions around different personalities and one another and to show how superior they are with the gifts that they have. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, he reminds us, he says, By themselves, your spiritual gifts attest nothing spiritual about you. Because by themselves, spiritual gifts say nothing positive about your spiritual condition, unless love is present. Paul goes on to love itself. Notice with what he says, it's not so much as a definition as a description. We've all heard this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. 
Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we're going to look at these verses, as Pastor John mentioned, from about 10,000 feet to keep it all in context. But what you notice right away is that love is not so much as a gift as it is a way of life. These are behaviors that are lived out. Now, love certainly includes our emotions and our affections, but it also includes our commitments, our entire way of living life. Jesus tells us that the the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor, and right after this, he gives us the story of the Good Samaritan to show us what love is supposed to look like. Uh, Just a note here on this word for love. It's one of the the few Greek words that most all of us are familiar with, agape. Uh, Paul uses it ten times in his chapter. It's going to be one of those you've heard that it was said, but I say to you moments. Uh, There's nothing intrinsic about the word agape that makes it stand out as divine love. What makes it so is the description and the character that the Paul or the Bible give to it. There are different Greek words for love, and quite honestly, a lot of people spend too much time in word studies to make a lot out of them, but it's the context that tells you the meaning, not the intrinsic definition. Agape is not a uniquely Christian word by itself. It is, however, when we see Paul tell us what love, agape, is supposed to look like. Paul tells us that all gifts, skills, ability, aptitudes, they all have limits, But love does not. We are to pursue love in the way that he describes it here in 4 to 7. That's what our love, our agape, should be. And the character, the nature of that love has been a failing point for this very gifted church. They have been arrogant. They have been impatient with one another. They've been self-promoting, resentful keeping records of wrongs, and and not thinking the best of one another. They are not bearing each other's burdens, and they're continually boasting about themselves or about the captain of their team. That's the Corinthians. Paul comes in, he addresses all of those things by showing this is how love is lived out by the people of God. And you don't really have to ponder verses 4 to 7 very deeply to get Paul's point. It's right there on the surface. Now, you can and you should think about these things very deeply, to be sure. But it's not a riddle to be solved. It's not some hidden truth. What you see is right there. Verses 4 to 7. They tell us what love looks like because they tell us that this is what Jesus' love looks like. When you look at 4 to 7, you see Jesus. That's the nature of biblical love. And that is the love that will last and carry forward. That's why there's a permanence to love. And Paul says in verse 8, love never ends. Prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Meaning knowledge is a gift, not knowledge in the things we know. Now, the miraculous sign gifts that were seen in these early days of the church, they largely did pass away about by the end of the second century. They, they don't seem to have gone much further than the second generation of Christians. But Paul is likely speaking more about the coming of the new age of Christ's return. He goes on and he says in verse 9, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes or the completion comes, the partial will pass away. 
There have been some who wanted to argue that the perfect here refers to the closing of the biblical canon, meaning uh, the completion of the New Testament. But, but most scholars don't think that's what Paul is referring to. Again, the return of Christ, the renewal of all things, is most likely what he has in view. I appreciate the short quip by Karl Barth in explaining this. He said, because the sun rises, all lights go out. When Jesus returns, the brightness and the return of who he is is going to diminish all these other gifts, talents, and abilities that are now functioning. They won't need to be there. If you're a doctor, when Jesus comes back, you're out of work. I will be out of a job. There are lots of us, thanks God, that we will no longer be doing what we're doing now. Because when Jesus returns, the brightness of who he is will dim all the lesser lights. We won't need healing. We won't need someone to tell you the word of God. And Paul goes on then, reminding them in verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. These Corinthians thought they were all that. They thought they had arrived. And Paul tells them, you've been childish. They've been making way too much of these gifts that will give way at some point. The emphasis is on being face to face. A time is coming when you will be face to face with the Lord. Faith will give way to sight. And there will be no need for tongues, for healing, prophecy, or other things. He's telling that real love then sees these temporary gifts, these abilities are for building one another up and not for our own glory, for our own selves. These temporary gifts are meant for others. They're just scaffolding that's here for a while. Kind of the scaffolding, again, I've used this before, like holding up the rocket. And when the rocket goes, the scaffolding falls away. But there's always those who are out there going, no, no, look, look at me. Stop, no, stop looking up. Over here, I was, the, I was like the, right here, click. That was my job. Look at me. No. All of us are reminding everyone, Oh, that's way more important than me. That rocket's Jesus, and that's glorious and grand. Look up. This stuff doesn't matter. All of its purpose was to point upward to Christ. That is what matters. And then Paul ends out his thought. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. A little ambiguity at the, the end here of what Paul is saying by, by now does he mean saying that faith, hope, and love are now, in fact, remaining through eternity? Or is he saying that faith and hope are now in this age, but only love will remain in the following? It's just a little unclear. One writer put it this way. He said, faith will become sight, hope will be fulfilled, but love will simply carry on. Either way, I, I think Calvin captures Paul's point very well. He says everyone gets some kind of advantage from his faith or his hope. 
but love gets poured out for the advantage of others. That's why it's so important to let the Bible describe the content of our love. Our culture makes love into this ooey-gooey acceptance and tolerance of whatever I want to be or whatever I want to do. And that makes love an advantage for me and not for others. Sort of this saying then is like, well, you accept whatever it is I want to do and I'll do the same for you. And that's what love is. No, that's still selfishness. Still about me. It's still just lipstick on a pig. And all that Paul writes here, he is pointing us away from ourselves. He's pointing us to the gifts that we have or for the benefit of others. And that is a warning then, not just to the Corinthians, but to us. There's a very clear warning here. Paul is saying it's entirely possible to be incredibly gifted, but not godly. Not godly at all. Giftedness and godliness are not the same thing. What Paul says here also lines up with what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. There Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's like, well, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? He goes on. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You're like, well, aren't doing those great things the will of the Father? The will of the Father is to believe in Jesus. It's to receive Him. It's to walk in, in, in the love and the grace and the mercy that He has provided for you. You see in Scripture gifted people who aren't godly. Balaam was a very gifted prophet, but godless. He was actually hired to curse Israel, and and the Lord turned it around to be a blessing for Israel. King Saul had the Spirit come upon him, and he prophesied. But he was a godless man who was more concerned about his public image than obedience to the Lord. The pagan King Cyrus, responsible for Israel returning and rebuilding the second temple. But he was unmoved by the God of that second temple. Judas walk side by side with Jesus. And along with the other disciples, great miracles were done through him. Saw amazing and profound things, but it did not penetrate his heart. Knowing things about God, doing things for God, even great things do not make you grace-filled. Me standing in front of you telling you these things, does not mean I have mastered love as Paul describes it. I am simply operating out of the gifts that God has given to me. Never mistake that. As you operate out of these gifts, that somehow that's equal to godliness. May they be wedded together as God intends. Always choose godliness over giftedness. A diagnostic for us. When someone calls your gifts or abilities into question, say, hey, you're kind of running over the top of people. Or, you know, you really can't take criticism without freaking out. 
I do not. I can't believe you'd say that. Yeah. That's probably an indicator that you're running on gifts and abilities and not on the heart of love behind those. When this happens, you see, your identity is not in that you have received love and forgiveness and acceptance from the Lord. Your identity is maintaining your giftability portfolio. I've got a portfolio. I need everyone to see my resume of the great things I am capable of. And so when that gets called into question, you lash back in anger or you sulk can't take criticism. But besides the warning, do you hear the hope that is here? All gifts and skills have a limit. There's an expiration date. Love does not have one. You may never stand before thousands of people. You may never write a best-selling book telling the great, wonderful things about God. You may never have amazing insights and special knowledge that people are are longing to hear from your lips. But the sky's the limit on love. It doesn't cap out. And it will never end. It's the one thing that carries into eternity. You see, you can love greater than Billy Graham. You may never reach as many people as him, but you certainly can love greater than him. You can love greater than Mother Teresa. Because there's no limit to how much you can love someone else. Your gifts all have limits, but not your love. And it's not about your gifts, about your, not about your powers or your abilities. Paul tells us, In Galatians 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's very similar to what he describes here. Gifts can be used apart from godliness, but fruit cannot develop apart from the Holy Spirit. This fruit, this description of love, comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, transforming your heart. Because of what has been done for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus, the most gifted man who ever walked the earth, was forsaken in order that we would be accepted. That is true sacrificial love. That is for the advantage of somebody else. Love is who Jesus is. And the more that you see the radiance of Christ's love for you and for others, the more that that love will transform you. And then your gifts, your abilities, your skills they can become a conduit for that love for other people. Apart from that, your gifts and skills certainly can be used by God in amazing ways. But it will be apart from you still. To be connected to that giftedness means that you are a conduit of that love. And that is an eternal supply coming from God through you to others. And no matter how limited some of your gifts are, some of your abilities and skills, there is no limit to the quality, the magnitude of God's love for his people through us. You can't 
tap out his love. You will carry that with you into eternity. And that love causes us to look up at Jesus and go, he is really wonderful. It causes us continually to then pull other people and you're like, don't look at me. Don't look at what I can do or can't do. Look to Jesus. Let me tell you about the love that he has had for me and how it continues to transform my life. Let me do this for you without bringing any attention to myself because I want to bless you in Jesus' name. The world sees that and takes notice. They see great gifts, to be sure, and they diminish the importance of character. But there is something about seeing the quality and the character of this kind of love that scratches everyone's head. They don't know what to do with it. And we all long to see it. Our hearts were made for this. Our hearts were made to be tuned to the beautiful song of Jesus. And as we hear this, as we look then at at 1 Corinthians 13, not cutting and pasting it out, but looking at it in its context, we immediately look at that and go, Father, forgive me for not loving you and loving others in the way that you've called me to. It, It draws us to repentance, but a repentance that is meant not to just abase us, but to glory in Jesus, to change our hearts. That, that repentance brings and that, that transformation where we're not accepting where we are. We're not accepting our sin. We're confessing it. Knowing that the joy of, of Christ is before us. The hope of glory in Him. And brothers and sisters, when the body of Christ is operating in giftedness and godliness... Our Savior is glorified. Pray with me. Father, indeed, we thank you so much for the incredible and amazing love that you have given to us through your Son. And Lord, we also confess our own, our own sin in not loving you and not loving one another in this way. Lord, we've asked not only that you would forgive us, but Lord, that you would continue to show before us the wonder and the majesty of Jesus. Father, we pray for the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit that he would continue to cause our hearts to call out, Abba, Father, to love you, to love others. We bless you, Lord God. We thank you and praise you for the love that you have shown to us. We bless you, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God forever.